address things hath done, in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms have blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. Oh, may this boundless song that now thank we all are God was written in a very tough time of life and it was written by a preacher by the name of uh, Martin Rinkert and um, he was a preacher during the bubonic plague and he was burying at least three to five people a day in his ministry during the plague and he it's estimated that he probably buried about 15 to 1700 people in his ministry during that time. And of course, one of them was his wife and a couple of children. And yet, um, he wrote that beautiful hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. Uh, he really had a, quite a thankful heart. At this time, let's come to the Lord and pray. Father God, we thank you that we, even in the midst of the darkest times of our life, we can be thankful for all that you do for us and how you even work through those crisis situations in our lives to bring us into new understanding and new depths of our love for you and especially your love for us. And today, Heavenly Father, we come to you with our nation. We're very concerned about where it's going and what it's doing, but we pray also too after we got out of these midterm elections now, Lord, uh, we look with new perspective, we hope, and that we can continue to move forward in this nation. When we sing that song, bless, God bless America, we really mean that, Lord. Because without your blessing, we know that we'd be in deep trouble. And we wouldn't be as prosperous and, and as good as we have it here. So we give you thanks for that, Lord. We pray for our president, for Congress, and also for the judicial branches as they make their decisions, Lord. May their eyes be focused on what your law is and what is right, rather than what their own agenda is. I pray also, too, for the men and women who bravely cover us in the streets and also on foreign soil to keep this democracy free and also from, to keep from chaos breaking out in our streets. I just pray for them and for the EMS and also those who work in hospitals that take care of us, Lord. We just give you thanks for this great country, Lord. 
And today, Lord, we pray especially for those that we know that are struggling in their lives, in our personal lives. We pray for Bill Bannister, who's battling ALS. I pray for Vic, Lord. You know his uh, challenges, Lord. We pray also for Evelyn, and we also think of Lucille and Karen, and for Gay, who had to spend the hospital with an ulcer. Lord, I just pray that you thank you for taking her home and bringing healing to her, for Joyce. We pray also, too, for Nick and for <clears throat> also the Gum family as they make the adjustment now without Daniel being in their home and that his wife and children have to readjust their lives. Just be with them and comfort them and give them peace. We pray also, too, for um, Samantha, Mama, uh, Blake, Mama, and Kay's uh, child with the brain tumors on her brain. I just pray for her healing. We pray that the stuff they take will bring that healing to that young woman. We pray also, too, Father, for John and for Betty's sister who had had more surgery. We pray also, too, for Sarah. And I pray also for Howard. And also, too, Father God, for um, other families that have had sadness in their lives and lost loved ones in the past couple of weeks, Father. And I pray also for those that we know that have addictions that are battling, Lord, the monkey on their backs. I think of Ryan, and I think of <clears throat> Jordan, I think of David, Eric, and Ricky, and um, Mitch. And I pray for Mitch, too, that's battling cancer now, Father God. And we pray also, too, for marriages, Lord, that are in trouble. Several in our church, Lord, that are going through difficult times in their marriages. I just pray for them, give them strength, and give them healing, and help them to see you, Christ, as the center, and to drop all the craziness and to start over from scratch with you, Jesus, in their hearts. I pray for an openness to change and for your Holy Spirit to work and for them to be molded by you, Christ. And now, Father God, I pray also, too, for tonight, Lord, as we come before the classes of the, uh, for the Synod, and that, Lord, that they will hear our, and understand us and realize that we have desire to change and no longer um, be in, involved with a group of people that don't want to hear your word, but that we can stand for the truth. Lord, help us, Lord, to in that tonight and in that endeavor. May everything go smoothly. May there be joy and fellowship, but also to the seriousness of the event that we can lovingly say goodbye to our brothers and move forward in this ministry. Thank you, God, for this time now together, too. And Lord, I pray for a blessing, your Holy Spirit to be upon us. Not only that the words that I say, but the meditations in all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's Jesus Christ's name I pray this. Amen. For a period of 15 years, Jesse James had a gang that committed over 26 holdups and made approximately about $200,000 in their takes, killed over 17, Jesse James alone killed over 17 people, one of them, uh, um, and, and Jesse James was one of the most notorious outlaws in the West. But something that we'd probably be surprised about, and that Jesse James was a very devout churchgoer. And Jesse James, shortly after he killed the bank rob in a bank robbery, um, Jesse James was baptized at the Kearney Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri. Then after he killed a bank teller, 
He also joined the choir and tried to teach people how to sing hymns properly. He loved the church, but he couldn't get there two Sundays because he had to, so to speak, catch a train, if you know what I'm saying. That was Jesse James. And if you didn't know better, you would say that Jesse James was a very good church person, a good member, baptized, sang in the choir, sang real well, and fairly regular attender. But of course, we know that he was a murderer and a thief. Obviously, Jesse James was a hypocrite. Now, we know in our culture, hypocrites are not liked by churchgoers and non-churchgoers. In fact, one of the top reasons, the top one reason why people don't go to church, they claim, is because it's filled with hypocrites. And five topics Jesus discussed, the number one that he spoke about was hypocrisy. In fact, he spoke at 73 verses about it. In a survey ranking hypocrisy, it's right up there with homosexuality, adultery, living together, and abortion. And when it comes to sin, nobody likes hypocrisy, but it's very prevalent. Jesus dealt with it with the Pharisees. And today we see it in Corinth. There was hypocrisy going on. If you remember, this Corinthian group was quite a crowd. They were a tough bunch. They had been come to know Christ through Paul's ministry of a year and a half being in Corinth and doing some great evangelistic preaching and teaching. But also we know that there was the Aphrodite, the temple for her, which is the sex goddess, was there. And many of them had trouble leaving that lifestyle. And Paul was sent a letter by Cleopas and he responds to it because he had written them a first letter. And this really is 2 Corinthians, but we call it 1 Corinthians because that other letter was lost. And he responds to seven things that Cleopas brought up and also told them about some of the things that were going wrong at the church. And they were into hero worship of Christian preachers. They also were divided over many things at the pot. They were selfish. They didn't share their food. They kept it to themselves. They took people to court that were rivals in the church, which was against God's will. And they allowed sexual immorality to go unpunished. Even an incestual relationship was going on in the church at the time. And they argued a lot. And then we know Paul spoke about marriage and several of the things to us as Corinthians as he spoke to the Corinthians. But then it came to last week when we had the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has gifted the church with gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference in today and some churches believe that they're no longer available or some of them are no longer available. Others believe that they still are. Pentecostals do believe that. But we see here what Paul is talking about is these gifts were supposed to unite edify and encourage and educate everybody and to be the good for the congregation for the good of all but what they were doing is they were dividing they were dividing the church and giving everybody upset with each other and Paul comes to them and he basically devotes 20 percent of first Corinthians to this matter of spiritual gifts and how they're to be used and of course, Paul sandwiches between chapter 12, 
which was a chapter on spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he talks about something that was greater. Now, we see this passage oftentimes when you go to a wedding. Somebody puts it on the front cover of the leaflet that they give you for the wedding that shows you who the bridesmaids are. But on the front of it, a lot of times, or on the back, it has 1 Corinthians 13 because it's known as God's love chapter. And yes, it applies to the love of marriage very strongly and does a great job in defining love. But it also deals with love for all things and love for people, and especially how these people who are using these spiritual gifts wrongly, hypocritically, because they were using it to say, this is me, and this is how good I am, and look at what God has given to me. And Paul says, that should not be taking place. But instead, he says, the greater thing is love. And of course, we know it's a fruit of the Spirit, but it's also to everything that we do should be affected that way. Now, of course, Paul wants them to make this course correction. And look at what he says here. And it's interesting that 1231, some common, most commentators believe it should be part of chapter 13. Back when they were dividing up chapters, they divided it up in the 13th century. And some people believe that maybe they, made, they should have made more adjustments and looked more closely because they didn't see this passage like this. And that 31 really should be verse 1 of chapter 13. And, and in the 16th century, that's when they divided it up in verses. You know, when we write letters, we don't put chapters and verses in them. That's what they did later on so that we could find things in our Bible in the 13th century and then in the 16th century. But these were letters that were just written out. And that's what Paul wrote here. And look what he says to them about this course correction. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. If you speak with tongues of men and angels, but have, do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith. That's even remove a mountain, but do not have love. I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now we hear of love all the time. We hear of its uses. And it's sometimes the use of it is not love at all, but it's other things. In the Bible, you see, in, in, in English, we don't have the derivation of love. And in the Bible, there are derivations as far as what love is. For instance, erotic love. That's the, sensual sin, that's the sensual love that a husband and wife should have between one another in a married home. But I had a fellow the other day said to me, yeah, I made love to this girl. He didn't make love to her. But if he would have used the Greek word, I would understand it was eros. That's what the love that he did. It's a sexual love. Then there's storge love. Storge love means a belonging love, that I like something. For instance, I like to play football when I was in college, and that's a storge love. I love playing football, and, or I love uh, eating certain kinds of food. That's the storge love the Bible talks about. But then there's also the philos love, the, lo the love of fellowship or friends. 
I talked to the new chief coming in from Philadelphia. And he says, yeah, I'm from the city of brotherly love of Philadelphia. You know that. I said, I do. Philos. He says, but it's not too loving these days. He said, we have six six to seven carjackings a day. We have at least six or seven murders a week. He says, it's not much love over there. And he was right. But we know that there's a philos love. That's the love we have in the fellowship here in the church. But then Paul speaking here, though, about a different love. And it's a New Testament word, really, that Paul has. And it's a love of God. And this is what he's talking about. And it works in marriages. It works in friendships. It works in a lot of relationships if we truly follow God's love. And that love is a sacrificial love. We know that. Because God didn't have to send his son from heaven, the perfection of heaven, to come to die for us. But because of his agape love, agapato they call it in the Greek, that he sent his son from the purity of heaven, came and we, taught, we do this at Christmas, the incarnation of Christ comes, and that he lives among us in the sin and all the stuff and remains perfect so that he can be the sacrifice for us. But it's that love, that sacrificial love that Christ shows us on the cross and comes down out of the perfection of heaven that he shows us that this is the kind of love Paul is talking about. Because these people were really still living by their gut. And he says you're living by your gut by the way you use your spiritual gifts. These gifts are supposed to be a blessing to you and you are taking them and destroying other people's lives because you're not following God's love in doing them. That's the missing key. And without that, it makes no sense. It's just dividing. And so Paul takes us now through that. He says, earnestly desire the better gift. But he also says here, this is an excellent way. This is the way it's supposed to be done. And then he takes us through and he shows us, number one, in chapter 31, in verse 31, that the preeminence of love, all other things fail, but love always remains. And this is God's way of showing us by himself, but also showing us that this is the way we are to act every day. And then he shows us the, the practice of love. And then he shows us the permanence of love. But right now, he's going to show us the preeminence of love and the necessity of love. Look what he says here. If I speak in tongues of angels and have not love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He says love is greater than elocution. You can say all the great things you want, but if you don't really believe them, and they're not deep-seated in your heart through Jesus Christ's love, it means nothing. He said, you can know all kinds of languages, and you can speak all kinds of, kinds of languages of heaven, but if there's not love in your heart, it is nothing but a noisy, clanging gong and a clanging cymbal. And what he's talking about here, when the gods were ready to pay attention to the people and wanted them to pay attention to them, up in that temple, up on top of the hill where Aphrodite's group stayed, they would hit these gongs, noisy gongs, and they also have clanging cymbals to call attention to their god. In fact, it's still done in some countries. 
like in, in the Hindus and some of the others, where they clang these things. And, and Paul is saying, if you don't have love in the gifts that you're showing, even if you speak so eloquently and do so well, it means nothing. I was reading about a man who was a great elocutionist, and he quoted um, by himself a beautiful uh, play, and he acted it out for them. And there are men who come around and do that and have it well, good minds where they can speak. And they eloc- he, he was a very good elocutionist. And after the play was over, people asked him if he would say the 23rd Psalm. And so he did, and oh, the crowd went wild, and they thought it was the greatest thing, how beautifully he said the 23rd Psalm. And then he stood there, and he said, I like my pastor, who's been in the ministry for 45 years. He's worked in the ghetto. I would like him to come up and quote the song. And he did. And nobody clapped. In fact, they hung their heads, and they were in tears. And he got up, the elocutionist, and said, you see, understand the difference here? He said, I knew the psalm. But he knew the shepherd who wrote the psalm. He knew Jesus Christ. You see, that's the point that Paul is making here. That without the love of God, we can say and preach and do all kinds of great things. That's why we have preachers who go off the deep end. Because they can say great things, they're great orators. But guess what? They don't have God's love in their heart. It means nothing. And that's what Paul is saying here today. He then goes on to say, love is greater than spiritual gifts. Look at what the gifts he says. He says you can have prophecies. That means to know the future. What's going to happen to America? And, and you can tell that to everybody. Or you can have this great gift of knowledge that knows all the mysteries. You wouldn't even have to be, when you go on the show for who wants to be a millionaire, you wouldn't have to have a call. Because you know everything. If you knew, can you imagine if somebody was given the gift of knowledge to know what the, how to cure cancer? Wouldn't that be something? And yet Paul is saying, without God's love, it means nothing. It means nothing. And then he goes on further and says, even if you took all your possessions and gave it to the poor to feed the world, and if you sacrificed yourself as a burnt, in a burning fire and saved somebody or burned yourself alive, and he says, it's nothing without the love of God. Because you need to know not only the gift, but you have to have the gift giver. And Paul wants them to get the course correction done in their gift use. Love is greater than communication. Love is greater than spiritual gifts. Love is greater than personal sacrifice. Paul is saying, I, I say nothing, I'm nothing, I gain nothing without the love of Christ in our hearts. And this is where the people were missing it. We can do all these wonderful things, but if God's love is not in our heart, it doesn't mean anything. In eternity, it's nothing. And then Paul comes and sits us down to the nitty-gritty about love. 
Look what he says. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Right off the bat, Paul attacks patience. He says, love is weights. It's long-suffering. The word in the Greek is makrothume. It means it puts up with a lot and continues to put up with a lot and doesn't give up and throw in the towel. But it hangs in there. I was reading about during the Civil War, a man by the name of Edwin Statton hated Lincoln. Couldn't stand him. And there were a couple of times he spoke to the newspapers because he was a, an official in the country. He called Lincoln a gorilla one time. And then he called him a baboon. And another time he called him a clown. That's how much he had vile towards Lincoln. But then there was a crisis going on with the Civil War. And when Lincoln needed somebody to appoint for a certain position, guess who he appointed? Edwin Statton. The very guy who was so obnoxious to him in the press. And the press came and said, how could you do that? He says he was the man who could do the job. No matter what he believes about me, I needed the man who could do the job. And Lincoln forgave him. You see, that's the long-suffering that Paul is talking about. Then he talks about this love is kind. There's a certain sweetness of our love that doesn't retaliate, but that is often eager to show itself and be kind to other people. Mark Twain said, kindness is the language that the deaf hear and the blind see, and he is so true. Kindness is a way in which is a universal language where we show people that true love of our hearts and that we don't retaliate or we don't do things against them. We don't let it snag us, but instead we show the kindness. Paul Harvey had a great story about this. He said the night before, a husband and wife went out and bought a brand new Buick. Beautiful car. Probably more than they could afford, but they bought it anyway. And the next day, his wife took it. It was going to be their car, but she was going to use it to work. He walked to work. And on her way to work, she got in an accident. And when the officer came to make the report, she said to the officer, my husband is going to be furious with me. Brand new car, we haven't even had it 24 hours. And already I banged it up. He says, well, ma'am, you need your license, you need your registration, and you need your insurance card. She said, I'll go in the glove box and get it. And when she opened up the glove box, there they were in a packet, but there was a note taped to the packet that it was in. 
And it said, honey, if you're getting these because you've had an accident, I love you and not the car. That's kindness. That's a kind heart that knew and accepted his wife even when she made a mistake like that. That's the kindness that Paul is talking about here. It's a kindness. And look what it says. It does not brag. It doesn't get jealous. It doesn't envy people. It doesn't envy when somebody else is doing better than us. Rather, we encourage them. When somebody at work inferior to us passes us, it doesn't envy them. It doesn't say, why am I not getting that and why are they getting it? When somebody does better than us, that we don't envy, but rather we rejoice that they're doing so good. Then he goes on to say, it does not brag. It doesn't boast. The word in the Greek really is translated windbag. And what it means is that the person begins to blow their horn, wants everybody to notice them. And is not arrogant, doesn't think he's better than everybody else, and is not puffed up, and does not act unbecomingly, is not rude. That's what it really means. Sometimes when we're close to one another, it's easy sometimes to take advantage and be rude. This courtesy of love in the little things, that's what rudeness can do. It can hurt when we're not courteous and loving in the little things. How many times have you seen somebody give a car sarcastic remark to somebody that you know in front of a crowd? That's part of that envy coming out. And what it is is that sarcasm can sometimes, a person will say, oh, I was just kidding. No, there was some truth behind that. You're rude to them because you're jealous of them. See, this is what Paul is showing us today here in this passage. He says he's not provoked, doesn't seek its own way. It's not selfish. It's not the kind of attitude that says my way or the highway. Instead, it puts others better and before ourselves. That's God's love. That's agape love. And it's not easily angered. Oh boy. It's not provoked, he says. In fact, I can tell you the struggle that I had early on in my life. Probably for the first 20 years of my life. And God began to change that in me. Because I had one of those kind of tempers, you know. That, man, if you just poked it just once, it was on. And God dealt with me on that. When I was away at college and I didn't have the support of my family and God showed me how wrong that was. And he began to great work inside of me, especially after I met my wife, dealing with this anger issue that I had. And then becoming a pastor and going into ministry with also the police department and seeing things to really get angry about that when you come out of those situations, you're not angry about much at all. You look at the stuff that you get angry about and say, guy cut me off, big deal. I hope he makes it to the light before I do so I can sit next to him and wave. 
You know? I mean, you think about how many things you get angry about that really are not that important. See, Paul says that that's not God's love. We've got to work on that, to change that in ourselves, that quick temper, that flying off the handle to try to take control of the situation so people will just go around you quietly and say, okay, don't set them off. Don't get them all wound up. See, that's why God worked on me. I saw it in my friends and how I needed to change that nuclear bomb that was inside the soul because it was really something inside of me that I thought I needed to have that to gain control. And I didn't. And I needed God's love to heal my heart and not to set those bombs off, but rather to give me the strength to not let those bombs get to me. And that rather letting the trigger of the situation or what the person said get me all riled up. Instead, I gave it to Christ and began to work through it. And people who tried to push my buttons were surprised they could no longer get to it. Why? Because I had peace of Christ. And these things were not that important. So what if you make fun of me? No big deal. I can laugh with you if you want. And that's what happens next. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Doesn't remember when somebody wronged you. I know in some situations people can get hysterical. And there's others who can get historical. That they continue to remember all the things that happened that you did in the past. And then they continue to bring up this new stuff. And Paul says, no, we don't keep the mental list. We dump it. We let go of it. We have a bad memory, a delete button in our minds. And then he says, we don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but we rejoice in the truth. And what he's saying here is that we truly are grateful when we hear the truth. You know, it's amazing how negative. If you go to the news at night, what is most of the news about? It's negative. It's down. It's bad. And it attracts people. Are getting on the good gossip. And here Paul says, no, we rather rejoice when the truth wins out. That we don't have to be suspicious when things are going wrong. And I know there are times that it's easy to fall into those traps. You know, I, it's sad. But I've seen it before and I've even seen it my own self, folks. And here Paul is saying, love doesn't take joy or pleasure in wrongdoing. Love never is glad to hear bad news about another person. Love never says, well, they finally got their comeuppance. They got what they deserved. Love is never happy to hear that a brother or sister has fallen into sin. In fact, the heart gets broken. Love does not enjoy passing along the gossip 
of the bad news, the cheap gossip. No, love rejoices in the truth and what is right and that God's work is there doing its way of changing our hearts and that it's no longer pointing the finger but it's rather saying, Lord, my heart is angry right now. My heart has been hurt right now. My heart wants to be revengeful right now but I want you, Lord, to change me. And make me the kind of person that you are. I want to emulate you, Jesus. And when those who spit at you, you didn't retaliate. Those who stabbed you in the side, you didn't retaliate. You could have called the host of angels and wiped it all clean. But you didn't. Because your love was there for me and for them. I need you to change me, Jesus. Take control of my heart. Help me to bear all things and to believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. Help me to have your patient love. Now, this is not a naive, stick your head in the sand as nothing happened. It deals with the truth and gets the truth right it. And clears up the mess and forgiveness comes and to show them the truth. In fact, today, I have a homework assignment for you. I want you to take these four verses, the three, and I want you to go over them this afternoon or maybe tomorrow during your devotions. And ask the Lord to reveal to you in places where you need some help. That need to be fixed. That you take this chapter 13. And that you read it once a day at least. And you know what? If you replace the word love, you could put Jesus there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Or you can even do better. Put your own name in there. Dave is patient. Dave is kind. Dave is not jealous. He doesn't brag and act arrogantly. See, because the scriptures show us here today that love is the preeminent thing here. And that we don't bring up wrongs. We don't nitpick. It's so easy to nitpick at a person. And it's tragic when a person doesn't see the good qualities in the person. I've seen it in marriages where only the person now who used to see that they were the greatest thing since sliced bread before they were married and then after they get married and they get along in marriage and all of a sudden it's a nitpick at everything that person does. That's not true love. The love understands. It doesn't point out every flaw. And it surely does not criticize in public. I remember we had a Bible study on marriage. 
early when we started the church, and I remember a couple came. And she would always complain that he never wanted to go to church and that he never wanted to go to Bible studies and finally got him to go to this marriage one because they were struggling. And then she used that as a public forum to try to change him and embarrass him. And it was ugly. And then she came and said to me, how come he doesn't want to come to your Bible study? What a surprise. You basically laid him all open and all his flaws before the Bible study. And you want to think that he's going to come back? You needed to encourage him. In fact, one of the things that we learned in seminary before we went into the ministry that they spoke to us as pastors and then they had a study for my wife and all the women were, Sandy was going to be my future wife. We weren't married at that time. And they said, don't ever criticize your spouse in front of anybody. Don't do it. Because you're setting them up for a fall. Because there are people who are listening. Some of want to have a relationship with your husband. And if you show that you don't like him and you're not happy with him, they're going to pounce on that. You don't need that in your lives. So whenever you talk about your wife, Dave, or whenever you talk about your husband, Sandy, you talk positive. So that you don't set them up. Today the Bible speaks to us about love. No, we're not to be gullible, but we're also to be in the truth. And that we give people and understand the future that they hold. Jesus did this with Simon Peter. He said, Satan's going to sift you. You're going to fall. But I'm praying for you, Peter, and you've got a job for me to do. But you need to go through this because you need to be refined. And your self-ego needs to be taken away. And you need to trust me more. You see, Jesus believed in it. He did that the same thing with the woman at the well. She had a whole, she was a prostitute. And when they came to accuse her and ready to stone her, they wanted Jesus to jump on the one. He didn't. But he wrote in the sand. And after they all left, because they believed that what he wrote in the sand was some of the sins that they were doing. He doesn't say to the girl, well, um, let's forget about it. No, he knew she was a sinner. But then he said to her, your sins are forgiven and go and sin no more. He gave her the future. You know, one of the things that marriages need is husbands and wives who believe and stand behind and encourage their mates. Our children need to be encouraged and show them that they have a future. Jesus said to Peter, you're going to be the rock. I was reading a story about E.V. Hill. He was a tremendous preacher in Los Angeles. Huge church. Black church. 
But before he got into the ministry, he married his wife. <clears throat> she came from an aristocratic family, had some money, and he came out of the ghetto, the slums, had nothing. But at his funeral, he said the reason why he was such a success was because of his wife, who believed in God and in him, and stood behind him. Even some of the worst failures, he had some money given to them, they had some money given to them, and he started a gas station. And it was failing, they weren't making money. And she still stood by him and encouraged him. So much so that one night he came home. And there was this beautiful table setting, ready for supper, candlelights. And she smiled and said, honey, welcome home. And she hugged him and kissed him. And he thought, whoa. He said, how romantic, honey. And she just smiled and says, yes, dear. Then he went to go into the bathroom to wash his hand, and he threw the light switch on, and there was no light. He came out. He said, what's wrong? She said, they canceled our electricity today. But it's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. And that love, he said, carried him. And after her, at her funeral, he said she was the reason for his success because she stood behind him and encouraged him and was with him all the way, never ever hinting that he was going to leave her. She was going to leave him. What a difference. Hopes all things. Endures all things. That's what he does. He always had her to believe in him. No matter how impossible, she still had the hope. And today the scriptures speak to us. Take these constant characters. And then he says, remember this. And this is what he wants to get through to these Corinthians. They thought they had hit the moon with all these gifts. And he says, love never fails. There are gifts of prophecy and they will be done away with. There are going to be tongues and they will be ceasing. There's knowledge and that will be done away with. Because right now what we know in part is prophesied in part. But when Christ comes and the perfect comes, all this partial stuff is going to be done away with. And he says, then think about it. Think of the maturity that you're going to see when Christ returns. He says, now, right now, we still think like children. I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I put away those childish things. He says, this is what's going on here. Don't be childish with it. For now, we only see dimly in a mirror. And in those days, their mirrors were very dim. They didn't have it perfected like we do. And they could see barely their face. But when we see Christ face to face and we know him, and when I am fully just as I also have been known, he says, then. But for now, he says, faith, hope, and love abide. 
But the greatest of these is love. And what he's saying to them, folks, <laughs> when we get to heaven, faith and hope are not going to be there. We don't need them. Our hopes and our faith will be realized fully in Jesus Christ and in heaven. We're not going to need prophecy. We're not going to need knowledge. We'll have it fully in Christ. And that what we're going to need is love that will always be there. You know, there are times that you feel hurt deeply. Corey Tenboon in The Hiding Place said it when she was in the concentration camp. When she lost her sister and was killed by the Nazis. She said that there is no pit deep enough that the love of God is not deeper still. God's love can cover that pain and deal with it. And that when you go through difficult times in your life, that you understand that Christ went through this. Charles Spurgeon said this so well. He said, when you're going through somebody giving you a hard time or, or, or they're persecuting you, and you feel like you're being hurt by them, he says, think of Christ who was on that cross. You weren't even born yet, and yet you were going to be a sinner. And that as you look to the cross and you see them spitting and stabbing and pulling his beard out and, and, and all the abuses of whipping that he received, think of that, that he didn't retaliate because he was up there for your sin that went against him. And because of your mocking and the things you do in your life, remember Christ and he, that image should focus and burn in our heads so that we don't give in to our angers. And that we're there. We're there with him. And that we trust him. You see, this is the nitty gritty that Paul speaks about. And it's a continual constant that he wants us to remember. That we don't give ourselves into it, but we trust Christ. And when the perfect comes, he says, all this stuff will mean nothing to us. But that love is superior because that's what's going to be in heaven. And we're working on it now. You know, I was reading a great story to close today about George Whitfield, who was during the Great Awakenings in America, was a preacher. He came from England and was a very strong Calvinist. And him and John Wesley got to be friends, but they strongly disagree about theology. And they would argue about it, who was predestined, who was not, who had the choice and who was not, and that, and that, and that, and that. But they still loved each other in Christ. They respected each other. And one day, while George Whitfield was visiting in London, a reporter tried to trip him up. And she came up to him, and she knew that Wesley and him were at odds in this theology. And she said to Whitfield, Well, do you think you're going to see Wesley in heaven? 
as if he's going to go to hell. And Whitfield said, no, I probably won't see Wesley in heaven. She thought, ah, great. Here's a controversy I can really pull into flames now. She said, really? So you think that he'll go to hell for what he believes? He said, oh, no. He said, are you kidding me? He said, I don't think I'm going to see him in heaven because he's going to be right up near the throne. And I'm going to be way back here in heaven. He'll be there. But he's going to be near the Lord. And I'm going to be way back here. And she got miffed. Because you see, he knew the love of Christ. And he knew that the necessity for all of us, <laughs> no matter where we're at, that we love Christ. And he loves us. And we love each other because of it. Today, I want you to practice and look at chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 and make that part of your DNA. And that you question and ask yourself, how deep is my love of Christ in my heart that I can follow him every day with that love? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, right now we come to you and we're grateful for the love that you showed us, your sacrificing love that left the beauty of heaven, the perfection of heaven, and came here in human form and put up with all this stuff patiently so that you could give us eternal life. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to love others. And to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind and each other. With this Christ-centered love. This sacrificial love. Thank you, God, for being present here this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. And now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God your Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done.